0: say hello Richard and
1: Uh, hello I'm uh, Richard Dagenhart I'm interim chair and about to be uh, no longer interim chair at the School of Architecture at Georgia Tech Mm -hmm. where I've been since uh, 1977 teaching architecture urban design a little bit of everything Um, yeah yeah and one thing that's new to me this fall uh, Doug Allen a longtime friend and actually where I learned about the Negro building uh, having lunch with Doug uh, in 1977, uh, I'm teaching the History of Urban Form uh, starting this fall, which would be my version of History of Urban Form. It won't be Doug's. Uh, nobody could do that. No, I'm not about no. I'm not about to even try.
0: Not even a showmanship yeah. that Doug has.
1: Yeah, but I'm going to—the uh, name of the course stays the same for the time being, but yeah. it'll shift with my perception of that history that— uh, is different from doug but in many ways is uh is the same
0: yeah and so uh, it's interesting doug comes from a landscape background and you an architecture background right, right um but you the two of you like so many architects of that generation and moving forward found a lot of interest in urban design and urban planning and i was um wondering how you came to to make that shift yeah it
1: was a uh, uh, i was in school in the 1960s when uh Things were in an uproar uh, over Vietnam and civil rights and all the, all the other stuff that was going on. I was about to graduate from, uh, be a Bachelor of Architecture degree, and I was vulnerable to the draft. Exposed. Uh, so I managed to get another year's deferment and uh, switched to anthropology. I got mm-hmm. a major in anth- degree in anthropology in that year, a major yeah and uh, that kept me out of the draft and uh, got me in the first lottery for which luckily I had a, uh, uh, a high number 352 right uh, and I then had the opportunity to go to graduate school and ended up going to the University of Pennsylvania and doing a program that was both architecture and city planning so you get both degrees at the same time right and at the time it was uh, it was it and Harvard were the two schools where that kind of degree, uh, overlapping degree, existed. Uh, so I had a great time, and I actually did a th- had a third contact there, which was the landscape program. So I was actually doing studios and courses in architecture planning and landscape. Right. Uh, and that really, that's what urban design was called at the time, was that. Combination of stuff. It
0: wasn't called urban design; it was called you're doing landscape architecture.
1: <laughs> no, it was actually called urban design. Nobody knew what it was. Yeah. Uh, I'm st- I'm not sure we still know exactly what it is, but uh, it comes out of those three fields.
0: Yeah, and there was there was a time when that was all considered architecture, and then there was a time in the late 19th, early 20th century where that all got pulled apart. Yeah. And then we saw that well, these things don't work together. This creates problems. Yeah, so and archi-
1: architecture went one way, uh, focusing on itself and buildings. City planning actually then moved away from anything physical and started dealing with uh, policy questions. That started in the 1970s. Yeah. Uh, and landscape architecture uh, moved away from the broader, uh, for a long time, the broader questions of cities uh, that Homestead was uh, interested in mm-hmm. into really garden design. Uh and then it moved into strictly ecological stuff. So all three, all three fields have sort of split away. And here you go to go across the hall to the planning program, and they talk about urban design, but it's a completely different thing. Over here, the faculty here talk about urban design, and they talk about it completely different way than I do. And then you go to UGA and talk to the landscape people, and they've got a different version. Okay. Uh, so it's uh, it's really a combination of all three of those things. Right. Uh, but fundamentally, it's, uh, I say it's about understanding the form of cities, the physical form of cities, right. and how that is designed.
0: How, it act- how that form is actually made. Yeah, how it's it
1: made. Who makes the decisions and how architects, landscape architects, planners, and civil engineers actually make the decisions to shape it.
0: And I, I think that's something that, that is always hard to refor- enforce because it's so... Foundational to what we do every day, that you lose track of the fact that this is is not a natural environment with trees sprouting up. there. somebody is making decisions, yep. and that it's those decisions designed to have impact. And I think, um, you know, I, I, having an anthropology background, I was wondering what you thought of when you moved into city planning, student studies.
1: It's, uh, it, was, it was, I think it was sort of a natural fit because, and it wasn't intentional to say anthropology leads me to city planning. But no, what anthropology did, did yeah, what anthropology <laughs> did was, was uh, uh, in the study of all the stuff you do with cultural anthropology, you're dealing with uh, uh, an idea that comes out of the 19th century of participant observation. Uh, mm-hmm. So the stuff that, most of the stuff you read in anthropology or did then was uh, uh, Americans or British uh, anthropologists going to visit primitive peoples to understand the culture. And the idea was if you record all the cultural differences across the world, then you can establish a general theory of culture. And of course that's nonsense because you can't know everything about everything before you decide what to do. Right, so at right. any rate there's, there's this legacy of uh, participant observation so you go as an anthropologist to uh, a completely different culture with a completely different language you learn the language by operating with them day to day and they accept you but you're always in a position of being both a participant and an observer mm-hmm. uh, and that that is directly related to the practices of uh, urban design where every project you're engaged with all different kinds of people, neighborhood people, public at large, uh, yeah. people that you don't know anything about, uh, other you know, watershed management, uh, people that are actually a foreign culture. Uh, yeah, very foreign. And the ability then to communicate, uh, really observing them to understand them and participate with them in projects. And it's sort of, I think, in many ways, a natural fit uh, between urban design and anthropology.
0: It sounds like the exact same tool set, except you're taking it a step further and then try to advocate for some sort of change, but yeah, through understanding absolutely. what these other people's absolutely. needs and agendas yep. are. Yep, yep. Um, which I think is really important in understanding um, that th- we talked about this, the physical form of a city being planned, but then it has real implications on society, that it's not just an empty box. Right
1: and it's uh, how it's actually laid out and organized uh, the physical framework that makes up the city uh, has all kinds of uh, implications for how it's uh, occupied and used and gives uh, opportunities i like to say, like to say that uh, uh, a city a good city a good urbanism a good city is one that enables mobility and accessibility right enables uh, I'm sure you diversity did. yeah and enables change over time.
0: It's the change over time. Um, well, they're all they're all kind of complex issues to get your head around. But it's that that change over time which gets a lot of people. And and you mentioned Doug Allen, who passed away, who was just a, a, an incredible uh, voice in the design community in Atlanta. And he talks about he talked about um, the two kinds of architecture. One is that he called the constitutional, which is what you're talking about, and then the other, which was or buildings, 99% of what we think of when we think of cities, he, he derisively, I think, or tongue-in-cheek, at least, called the representational order. Representational order. It's just yep. sort of a yep. illustration of something.
1: Yep. Yeah. Yep. And it's what we f- frequently do. We see the surfaces of things, uh, the appearance of things, and miss out on what the fundamentals are that uh, the underlying framework.
0: Yeah. They're the... They're the the results not the, the yep. thing and I think yep. it's true in a lot of design at a lot of yep. scales. yeah
1: and that's what happens with a lot of uh, real estate development tries to say okay we're gonna make something look like a street in Copenhagen uh, yeah. and it's in suburban Atlanta and you say what yeah uh, it's dealing only with the representation of things not with the fundamentals of how you make a city
0: yeah and that's we I spoke with Ellen also Ellen Dunham Jones who's also uh, a professor here at Georgia Tech and um, a person interested in similar things, and she talked about in that same way. Her movement from architecture to urban planning was the understanding that that development that looks like a Copenhagen street in the middle of suburban environment is not that. It does not work like that. And it does not have anything like that. And so how do you make a meaningful building of, whether you want to replicate Copenhagen or um, Detroit, Yeah. how do you do that? Yeah. It? It's, it's more than the building. Right. Right. Um, And I I think another, so there's that with the story of the Negro building, which we'll get to, uh, about that relationship of space and culture. Um, And there's one other, again, it's a Doug Allen story. Uh, I never had, had the pleasure of having you for a class here at Georgia Tech, but I had Doug a couple times, which was he talked about Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech and how one of the things that makes it so powerful is the National Mall being a public space, not just being, not just looking green, and being green, and being a park space that maybe is owned by a corporation, but they're required to set aside for public use, but it's still private property, so you can only do certain things. It's it's a public space. It's a space for this kind of thing, and it has this latent energy, which he and Martin Luther King in that speech was able to harness and project out and say, we are citizens here of this country. We, this belongs to us, and the, this whole thing amongst
1: us. Yeah, in a a case where uh, that space where the mall was uh, created, Mm -hmm. uh, and what was positioned there with the Washington Monument at one end and Lincoln at the other, and you say, okay, where are you gonna have an event like this? Right. Where are you gonna have this? Okay, well, that's the place. That is the center, the symbolic center of the city of Washington and the country. Yeah. Okay, and then you say, Where are you going to stand?
0: Which end of the mall?
1: And say, well, uh, duh, I'm going to stand in front of Lincoln on a raised platform. Uh, And you say, and looking back at the Washington Monument. Mm -hmm. You say, well, I mean, the setup is there. Nobody envisioned that happening. No. You could never envision that event happening in that space if you were a designer. But it enables those things to happen. Because of the way it was built incrementally, right. and that's true of all good public space—that
0: it's not yep. just <clears throat> fired out at once; that it it's built up right. over.
1: Right, because you can't you can't uh, design a uh, a place. I say, uh, you can design a framework within which that place can emerge by the people who occupy it and market.
0: Right, because place is different you, in space. You can design a space, but a place has to be imbued with some sense of meaning and purpose. Yeah. And yeah. you can't yeah. manufacture that.
1: Yeah, and yeah. it's marked uh, by people that occupy it over time.
0: Well, that, that brings us to another place, which would be Piedmont Park, which developed over time and becomes the setting of this,
1: this yep. story of the Negro building. Yep. And the Piedmont, the uh, uh, Cotton States and Industrial Exhibition, Exposition uh, of 1895 uh, is the background for Piedmont Park. Before that, it was the Piedmont Driving Club, and the club still exists, yeah. uh, but the people that were the, I guess, the major members, uh, maybe the founding members of the driving club, were part of this group called the Coalition for the New South, right. uh, led by Henry Grady, mm-hmm. uh, really the mouthpiece was Henry Grady, was the editor of the Con- Atlanta Constitution.
0: And this was, this was around the end of Reconstruction, and yeah. the New it's South was, we're no longer agrarian plantations, but we're gonna be a modern industrial right. area. Right. And, and it really it started,
1: I don't know the when it actually started, but the it was the election of 1876, uh, that was the end of Reconstruction. That um, was Hayes, I think. Yeah. He
0: had to, it was a close election. And, and had been the trade troops, away. troops
1: were withdrawn yeah. from the South. Uh, and that was the beginning of, then, uh, the South, uh, people in Atlanta, not the rest of the South, but people in Atlanta, saying, okay, we need to rebuild the South, and it has to be an, an industrial uh, manufacturing center, not simply a part of the agrarian South. The South has to change. Right. Uh, so, Henry Grady was the mouthpiece of that, and they were all they were they were strict segregationists. Uh, mm-hmm. Henry Grady uh, gave speeches on both sides of the country, saying completely different things. Uh, there's one speech he gave in the New England Society in Boston that says, saying that the New South had arisen and black and white worked together, and that was all history. Blah blah blah. Yeah. Two years later, he goes to Dallas and gives a racist speech, say segregation will last forever because it's you know, the only right thing to do. So there's the New South movement was sort of mixed up they knew they had to deal with the issue of former slaves and race right but they didn't know how to deal with it
0: then and, and they, they seem to treat it as an as an inconvenience they need to get out of the way so they can get onto their agenda which is yep making money which is, is sort of when people say the Atlanta way a sort of euphemism for that yep uh, tolerance of, of racism but also tolerance of making yeah. And I think this is an interesting story, too, because it illustrates to me and why I'm always wondering why cities, some cities are more successful than others, and why did Atlanta become the cultural and, and uh, economic power of the southeast as opposed to other cities, some of which are obviously growing a lot now, but were maybe more yeah. established. Cause yeah.
1: and I think it was a small group of people called the Coalition for the New South that were responsible, really, for the founding of Georgia Tech. Yeah. Uh, for the, for the, an earlier exposition in 1886, I think, uh, called the Cotton Exhibition or something that was where, uh, took place where Oglethorpe University is. Oh, okay. And then, uh, then they wanted to go bigger mm-hmm. uh, because then, uh, 1889, the Paris exhibition, uh, when the Eiffel Tower was built. Right. The uh, centennial of the French Revolution. Right. And then there's the 1893 exhibition, exposition in Chicago, the White City, right, which is a big deal. So Atlanta is, in some way, is waving its hands and saying, hey, look at us. Yeah, Paris was saying, look at us. Chicago was saying, look at us. Now Atlanta is saying, look at
0: us. Well, I'm sure Chicago no. was a model for Atlanta, too, because it really was a cow town, like literally where the cows came to be slaughtered, and everybody scoffed at Chicago, and Atlanta was not much more than a railroad crossing right. that grew during the Civil War as, as from from a railroad crossing to an actual city as, it, as the Union Army advanced and shut down other southern cities, they shipped all their economic development there. So Atlanta was really a newcomer to the yep. south in a way yep. that older cities weren't.
1: Yeah. And that explains part two, there's a longer story of this, of the, of the sloganeering of Atlanta. Uh, Atlanta <laughs> has lived on slogans uh, yeah. uh, for its entire history. Well, uh, it's and it comes from being uh, being nothing, being a railroad stop, and then you have to invent some way to make a city. And the Cotton States Exhibition is really a part of that booster mentality uh, of saying, "Okay, look how important we are. Yeah. We're having an international exposition here, and it was a big deal. Uh, only a million people came, right? but a million people maybe. is actually well, it's like eight hundred thousand. Yeah, but that's but that's a lot of people for Atlanta at that time. Yeah." Uh, so, uh, the, but the exhibition, exposition began as an idea to get an international focus on the economy and industrialization of the South.
0: To move it beyond this, yep. the original exhibit, <laughs> which kind of covered the South, they wanted to reach an international market to say. Yep. We're a power like Cleveland.
1: Right, and to be international, they had to have federal investment, federal funding uh, yeah. to help support the exposition. Yeah, the, the so federal government had to house. Thus them. then the story of the Negro building begins because these white guys uh, know that they've got to deal with, uh, they got to be up front about the issues of race in order to get money from the federal government. Uh, right. So they take uh, Booker mm-hmm. T. Washington and two other uh, two other black guys from the south mm-hmm. with them uh, and go to Washington to make their pitch for money. Uh, right. And it's only with the money that they get the recognition of being an official international exposition at the same kind of recognition as Chicago and Paris. Right. And sitting on the committee, uh, interesting sort of sidelight, was a guy, Representative Murray, an African-American from South Carolina. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think he was the only black representative on the, Appropriations Committee. He must have been one of the last, and probably, holdouts. probably one of the few uh, African Americans from the South mm-hmm. still serving uh, in public office. Yeah. So he says he listens to the speech, and Booker T. Washington makes the pitch uh, for the for the project. He's not talking about the building; he's just pitching the project of industrializing the South. Yeah. And uh, uh, Murray says, "Okay, I'll support this." $200,000 investment by the federal government and the Cotton States Exposition. Which is a huge outlaw. As long as there is a separate Negro building mm-hmm. uh, that with free admission uh, with uh, free exhibits, uh, free, you don't have to pay to exhibit in the building mm-hmm. uh, and that it's built by a under the direction of a black commissioner and it's as a black contractor right and he may have said architect I don't know the architect was white uh, who did the rest of the buildings at the exposition but the contractor was black okay uh, a guy from uh, LaGrange Georgia Okay. so that was the demand and everybody else said okay okay you know if you get 200,000 bucks that's a lot of money yeah uh, $200,000 like yeah we'll agree to that yeah uh, and that sort of solved the problem seems uh, like a
0: cheap Cheap deal to them, I'm sure, like one building? Yeah. Okay, yeah.
1: yeah. So if you look at that and say, okay, maybe, just maybe, mm-hmm. uh, if Murray had not been there uh, or if the uh, New South guys had not wanted to do a Negro building or not had Booker T. Washington there, it could be that there would have been no federal investment, therefore no international exposition. Maybe the exposition wouldn't even have happened. Maybe Piedmont Park would actually not be there today, and maybe Atlanta would not have been the capital of New South. Now, that's speculation. Right. Right. But if you read through this, uh, it's entirely possible to begin speculating and say the Negro building and and the funding of it and the sort of interesting dialogue between New South and Booker T. Washington and this guy Murray from South Carolina All of a sudden, something happens almost by accident that actually begins to propel Atlanta into a bigger role than they thought they had.
0: Yeah, it might be that particle that precipitates and then, so, we'll talk about what happened in the Negro Building, but we'll lay out the way that, if you could, where the Cotton Exhibition was set up, because that says a lot about the times also. Yeah, yeah,
1: so the Negro Building had to happen. Uh, Booker T. Washington was the commissioner. Mm-hmm. Uh, the architect of the exposition designed it along with all the other buildings. They were all temporary buildings.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And they were built around the oval, which is now the uh, softball field, which used to be the driving, uh, used to be the racetrack. Where they'd take their horses uh, and drive so was Yeah, so the buildings were built around it. Uh, there's one set of steps now from uh, lower down next to, the, uh, next to the clubhouse where you walk up some sort right. of red, granite, redstone steps. Uh, and that was the steps up to the big uh, uh, racetrack platform, the big oval, that then you could walk to the individual buildings. Okay. But over on the other side was uh, the Negro Building, which was as you enter from the Charles Allen Gate mm-hmm. uh, today, which was Jackson Street, right, uh, which extended Jackson Street, as you know, goes south. Right. Uh, and ends up uh, uh, intersects with Auburn Avenue, right right at uh, Ebenezer Church okay Ebenezer Church wasn't there then it was somewhere else somewhere else yeah. uh, down the street right but uh, yeah. that was a connection uh, so part of the explanation would be the Negro building was put there because it was through the gate that wasn't the main entry the, was the 10th entry. Would be coming down. but it then connected directly to Atlanta's black side it was called which was uh, around Auburn Avenue and the old Fourth Ward right so then uh, uh, on either side of it, instead of being next to the other buildings, mm-hmm. uh, on one side is the Midway, which was co- named after the Midway Plaisance in uh, Chicago, mm-hmm. where the Ferris wheel was, and so on. Right. Well Atlanta mm-hmm. had a Ferris wheel too, okay. uh, <laughs> even then. Yeah,
0: <laughs> for whatever reason. Yeah,
1: and uh, all kinds of ethnographic exhibits, sort of crazy stuff like. Uh, an African village and uh, like an a slave cabin. Yeah, and a you know, slave cabin and Egyptian dancers and hoochie coochie girls and all kinds of stuff. Yeah, kind of uh, entertainment. That's the entertainment for the fair, and the midway. One interesting thing that that word, the midway, that comes from Chicago, then becomes familiar to everybody in the country who's ever been to a county fair yeah. because they all have midways. Huh? And that's where you and have your shooting games yeah. and your, and that's the sort of it. you have all this crazy stuff. Yeah. Huh? Uh, so then on the other side is Buffalo Bill's Wild West Show, mm-hmm. which is also an ethnic thing because it's, cow- it's uh, portrayals of cowboy and Indian fights yeah. uh, is what the Wild West Show was about. So it's cowboy shooting Indians right, is what the Wild West Show is about. So is the Negro, era, the of, Negro you know. building sits between those two. Uh, so it's clearly sort of put aside, it's almost... And you don't know how decisions were made, and there's no evidence of any decision of putting it separately. But it's almost as if the Negro building was viewed as another one of the ethnographic exhibits, uh, sitting along Tenth Street with the Midway and the Buffalo Bill Wild West. Show. Right, sort yeah. of an
0: odd, sort of an oddity to go go yeah. see. And yeah. the the Buffalo Bill was down in the, the in valley the valley where you sit for Jazz Fest.
1: Right. Yeah, um, and. After the uh, after the exposition, uh, there was a fence put around where the Wild West show was, and the fence around the Negro building. It was called Lincoln Park, and it was an African American park.
0: So the park was segregated. Piedmont Park was yep north of there and yep. east of there or whatever yep. west. So
1: and then the city and then the city bought Piedmont Park uh, from, from, the, from the driving club, and then it was segregated, not by law, but the fence came down, all the buildings were destroyed. Uh, and uh, uh, I guess that's about the time Washington Park was built in South Atlanta so it's what, what, a black park
0: what year was that
1: 19 I think it's 1905 so
0: 1905 which, which makes sense there was kind of a segregation of population going on there yep. in response to some yep. racial tension yep. so they wanted to not just they wanted a, a division and Atlanta ends up having look yep. at a map yep. sort of an industrial zone which splits the city in half and there's Southwest Atlanta Yep. which is predominantly black, and yep. Northeast Atlanta, yep. which is predominantly yep. white yep. or multicultural. Yep. That's the setup. Is this uh, building is set off kind of to the side, and that yep. perpetuates some things in the future. And then over on the other side is the big exhibit going. So, yep. And certain events take place.
1: Yep. And uh, the Negro Building then becomes the place for... What Mabel Wilson called the formation of a black counterpublic, right? Uh, but of a group uh, counterpublic is somebody that is is a group of people who uh, are not part of the mainstream public. Like the Coalition for the New South, that was the power structure. So a counter a white counterpublic then would have been maybe the uh, traditional southern. Uh, agrarian racist group would be a counterpublic to the New South. Who wanted no movement whatsoever. That's right. And
0: mm-hmm. then, then maybe <clears throat> yeah. this and other group wanted... And, and c-
1: consolidate their own power separate from the other. Right. Uh, so, uh, Mabel Wilson t- describes this as a, a black counterpublic that's emerging at the Negro Building and in Atlanta at the same time. Right. Uh, so it's uh, uh, a cultural formation that is not simply uh, the assimilation of uh, former slaves into the larger white culture, but uh, uh, demanding that they have their own culture and their own visibility uh, to deal equally with everybody else Mm -hmm. uh, and have the same equal power. Right. So that's what was emerging uh, uh, in the Negro building, uh, in and around the Negro building. while the New South people were trying to really deal with the Negro problem, as it was called in the press at the right. time, of how to bring uh, blacks into the mainstream of um, of uh, the economy and culture, right, uh, and sort of keep things right. calm, uh, keep things okay. Yeah, and so and, and that so the the
0: Negro building. How big did you say it was?
1: Uh, Twenty-five thousand square feet. So it's it, a big building.
0: So it, be, yeah. it ends up becoming a sort of a convention unto itself yeah because
1: because the way they set it up where they said in 2029 uh, black colleges now uh, HBCUs uh, had exhibits in the building right as well as something like 12 states Uh, so it was a major place of exhibitions of uh, art literature uh, sculpture uh, agricultural implements crafts quilting All kinds of stuff.
0: Right. So so to relate this to some of our earlier conversations, like about the King speech at um, at the National Mall, this building created a a space in which this could come take place. But there's also the the other important part was the restrictions put on the New South people. Yep. By um, by the the representative from South Carolina that said this is going to be controlled by blacks and it's going to be free. So that creates the the
1: rules of engagement within that space. That's right. So that there is there is a a building a space that's created a building and the building really is of no architectural significance whatsoever.
0: Right. It's and not th- in a beautiful building. Yeah.
1: It's not about the building. It's about the space that enabled things to happen uh, and begin to happen in that place at that time. Well, yeah. it looks very much like
0: a building built to provide pure volume. We want to yeah. get as much. Um, so what's going on? And there are these meetings and these sharing these ideas about how are we going to become um, have a voice in how this uh, how this goes and have agency yep. and have the full use of the promise that America is yeah. that all men are created equal.
1: Yeah. And Booker T. Washington, who's the commissioner of the Negro Building, right? Right gives the speech on opening day of the exposition, which is uh, sometime in September, early September. Right. Uh, the exposition lasted for 90 days, closed on December 31. Right. Uh, the Negro Building wasn't done yet, or the exhibitions weren't in. It's not clear why it opened didn't open till October the 1st. Right. Probably because all the ex- uh, expo- uh, ex- exhibits had not yet arrived and been set up. It seems but, to happen at these exhibits. Yes, yeah, but Booker T. Washington gave his speech on opening day to a black and white audience that was segregated. Right. Black people and white people in the same room together. Right. Uh, with Booker T. Washington and other white people on the stage. And this is over in the main exhibit area? This is over area. in the main exhibit area. By uh, the baseball fields. Yep. yeah. yeah uh, close to the uh, 14th Street entrance to... Uh, uh, to Piedmont Park. Okay. right. So that was on opening day. The Negro building wasn't open yet. Right. There was another speech on opening day of the Negro building by J.W.E. Bowen. Okay. A uh, famous uh, clergyman here in Atlanta, mm-hmm. who then uh, gave his speech, and it's the title of it is An Appeal to God. No, an appeal to the king. Appeal to the king. Appeal to the king, which means and clerical language, an appeal to God. Right. For a full political equality. Oh, and it's, it's an incredible speech that goes on and on and on about the demand for justice and equality and full participation in American society. And that's, that's which wasn't the same thing Booker T. Washington was talking about. Right. Yeah. So, so one was the Negro building and one was Booker T. Washington. Well, let's,
0: let's talk a little bit about Booker T. Washington, because this is a, a famous speech, and it, we'll talk a little bit about it.
1: Yeah, so it's one of the, one of the, I don't know, half a dozen most famous speeches in American history. It ranks up there in importance to uh, something like the Gettysburg Address. Yeah. It's one of those speeches that everybody knows about. Uh, and it's interesting because it was the call for separate but equal, and we all know that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it had the effect of legitimizing Jim Crow, although mm-hmm. that's clearly not what, what Booker T. Washington had in mind. No. That's what happened. But he was trying to you know, the, it's called the Atlanta Compromise, but it's—he uh, was trying to be accommodating to this new world of education, uh, industrializing the South and, and growing an economy for everybody. And he thought that's the best way it could be done. And, and right. he
0: basically said, we, "We, you know, leave us alone to our, our demise to help ourselves, and you go do your thing, and we'll be separate but equal." That's right. To use we'll the be term, separate,
1: separate but equal. Right. Yep. Right.
0: Yep. And then. We, I think we skipped over this a little bit. At the time, to be speaking to even a segregated audience, actually be letting African-Americans into a room to talk, yeah. to listen, that was, that was already a giant leap forward. So yeah. that, that was the environment he was yeah. operating in, where just to have, A, a black man speaking to white people, and then to let other black people hear it. Yeah, is yeah.
1: and there's huge, uh, I mean, a lot of congratulations from everywhere. Uh, right. Uh, the only pushback was from black clergy and the black press. Everybody else says great. The New York Times, that was great.
0: Well, uh, it was the message that you want to share to the world to say, you know, the the problems of race down here aren't that bad. We yep. black people are okay with it. Yep. You other people should come down yep. here and do business. Yep. So now or At least that's how it was spun by the white media.
1: Yep. Everything. So now everything's going to be fine. Right. We don't have to worry anymore. Right. What we're going to do about the Negro problem? Right. Okay. So, but in the Negro building, uh, something else was going on, which was. Arguably, the beginning of the struggle for civil rights, uh, right? And the, and and that struggle and that history is really complicated. But it, it's uh, Henry Gates, uh, uh, the professor at Harvard, yeah, uh, who had a beer with Obama. You know, after after he <laughs> got arrested oh, yeah. on his front porch. You remember right, that? right, right. Yeah, he's still he's sort of a stuffy guy, but uh, he writes he writes about this history, and he mm-hmm. says the Negro building. Uh, is the beginning of what became the New Negro Movement, uh, which is sort of the cultural cultural uh, beginnings uh, of African American history. It right. then turns kind of. into the Harlem Renaissance, right? right? And then the full uh, movement of civil rights begins to come out of that, right? Uh, so the Negro Building, uh, you know, we talk about around here, we don't know anything about this. I mean, which we're observers and we read stuff and hear about this building think well it should be more important uh when somebody like Henry the great says the negro building is the beginning of the new negro and the harlem renaissance they say uh okay right uh, we get it uh, there's something there that's uh, uh not a lot of evidence you know there's not a long record of why it's significant mm-hmm. but there's enough threads that you say okay this is an important building well uh, yeah but what's important about it is not so much the building itself as it's what with on, went on within it. And the spa- that space that was created uh, in some ways by accident uh, becomes an important part of African American and civil rights history in the US. Right. And nobody knows about it.
0: Well, in a greater kind of, or broader, not greater, but the right word, sense of design too, when we try to advocate for good design, people think it's aesthetics. And it's not that, it's design that serves people. And I think it's important to recognize that it was not a beautiful building. Yeah. But to have it designed correctly and well to serve that purpose yeah. is what was important. And, in, and it, the building doesn't make it happen, It. it but it provides a space that's loaded with potential, Yep. which then makes it happen in the same way you can do with cities, you yep. can load it with yep. potential to yep. be a fully engaged citizen. Yep.
1: And that space, because that building, which was put there for a particular reason, uh, uh, having to do with politics and sort of dealing with problems. Practical things. Positioned there, fact. practical things, p- s- put in a particular location then enabled uh, the events that occurred within it that makes it significant and yet it's gone. Torn down about 1910, the representation along with all the other gone. buildings. Uh, nobody knows about it there's one funny story we uh, two or three of us went to Piedmont Park uh, about a year ago uh, uh, looking looking at the site uh, and we were gonna do a video and it sort of did a little bit of a video and it didn't work very well but we stopped people and said uh, have you ever heard of Booker T Washington and everybody said well yes Mm -hmm. they didn't Connected to Piedmont Park, but everybody knew about Booker T. Washington. Yeah. Black, white, old, young, didn't matter. I'll hear the peanut. Have you heard? Have you heard of the Cotton States Exposition? Uh, nobody. Oh really? Not a single person. We we stopped about 15 people, and not a single person had heard of the Cotton States Exposition. Huh. I thought that'd be okay. more about. <clears throat> and then you say, well, you know, you know those steps over there. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you say, have you heard of the Negro Building? And say, huh? I'm not sure. <laughs> 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 and. Uh, Huh? What? What? And it was hilarious, because there was only one guy who actually knew about Booker T. Washington, the Cotton States Exhibition, and even knew about the Negro Building. It was an old, homeless, white guy. Really? Uh, uh, it knew about it, because he spent so much time in Piedmont Park, I guess he read all the plaques. Uh, he knew, he was asked enough questions about stuff. He knew about all three, but that's the only person. Mm-hmm. The rest of the play, the rest of the city, I've talked to probably several hundred people. Uh, there are a few, mostly black architects or black politicians who know about it, so. Uh, uh, Shirley knows about it.
0: Shirley Franklin.
1: Yeah, Shirley Franklin knows about it. Uh, uh, black, or ar- most black architects uh, right. know about it. But that's about it.
0: Right. Uh. Well, I think, and we'll, we'll move on to addressing that problem of not knowing it, but the, um, one thing I wanted to touch on, I forget if we've touched on it or not, is that this Negro building became a model for other exhibitions, and there yep. became a Negro building <coughs> at every exhibition.
1: Yep. They're through, particularly through the South.
0: So oh. in, in many ways, this becomes a model which is repeated, where periodically there's African-American conference happens, yep. where people get to see, this is, yep. in that same way, beginning to find what Blacks just finding what it means to be black. Yep. They're then sharing that throughout the world, and and, and part of what brought this yeah. project that we're going to talk about up is, is a book that was written about those. Yep. Yeah. What was the author's name again? The uh, uh, the, the author's name of the Negro Building book?
1: Uh, Mabel Wilson. Yeah, and she's involved. Yeah, she's in she's an she's an architect. Yeah. teaches at uh, teaches at Columbia. Okay. Uh, she was down here for a lecture three, four, five years ago, uh, mm-hmm. and she was going to come down again. This fall, she's the uh, she's a member of the jury of the Negro Building Competition, right? Which is why we're talking about this. Which is why right? we're talking about <laughs> this. So I think,
0: yeah. and, we're, and it's it's we'll talk about the project. Tell tell them what it is. So and, anyway,
1: anyway, I I learned about the Negro Building. Uh, I think I said in the fall of 1977, it must have been uh, early September of 1977. Probably the second time I talked to Doug Allen, we're sitting in a room up in the library having a terrible sandwich, <laughs> uh, and we're talking about the city, and I didn't know anything, essentially nothing about Atlanta. Yeah, I just d- moved here two weeks before. Right. And uh, he's talking about uh, Piedmont Park, and I'm sure he said, uh, yeah, you know Booker T. Washington speech? And I said, well, yeah, of course. Yeah. Did you know it took place in the Cotton States exhibition? Uh, no. Right. Uh, did, uh, and, and all of a sudden, the mention of the women's building ex- ex- exposition came up because there was a ex- women's building at the exposition, just like there was a women's building in Chicago.
0: Well, that's interesting. So the women have their own uh, exhibition space also. Yes, So it wasn't yes. just white people, white, it was women. white men. White women. And White right. women had their but space. But that
1: happened first. Uh, the first uh, women's building was in uh, uh, the, the Columbia Exposition in Chicago. Right. right. So, but this was the first uh, Negro building, and Doug mentioned that, and sort of I knew about it. Uh, okay. What, 35 years later, Uh, a young woman who's uh, just graduated from uh, Georgia State. Uh, She was gonna be here, but uh, she's not feeling well. Annabella Jean Laurent. uh, She's a Haitian-American. Okay. Uh, Was interested in uh, uh, the Beltline and somehow got my name uh, and came and interviewed me talking she was gonna write something about the Beltline and I was talking about the Beltline and uh, it mentioned the, the, the railroad the tide of the beltline of the Negro Building is really important because the Southern Railroad, who owned that sect owns that section of the beltline right. by Piedmont Park. The rail was built over the the valley, over where Clear Creek is, okay. so that the visitors that came by train, and there were a lot of them, uh, got off the train very close to the Negro Building. So that I guess I guess
0: if you're standing at where the, the north end of the existing trail on the Beltline is, and you cross over Monroe, that's the area you're talking about, which I guess was a
1: train, it sounds like it was a trestle, and they built that for access to the exhibition. That's right. right. There was a railroad station built there. There was also a railroad museum across the way, (laughs) but uh, there was a railroad uh, station there where, I don't know how many, probably two, a couple hundred thousand people came by railroad you would imagine it was probably... To, uh, to, to Atlanta to come to the exhibition. If you're coming any distance. Yeah, yeah. So we had that conversation, the Negro building comes up, and she says, of course, she says, huh, what? So we started talking about the Negro building, and uh, uh, Mabel's book had come out mm-hmm. uh, a couple of years before, so I grabbed a copy of it and showed that to her. And she was she was saying, well, this is really interesting. I said, well, yeah, it is. Why doesn't anybody know about it? Right and you, know, you ask that question and you say people should know about it yeah so how do you get people understanding that this building was there and its importance you say okay how about we do a competition right
0: right like a design so then competition th-
1: then it, then it becomes okay we're doing a competition to commemorate the building but it's not really the building it's the negro building which is the stuff that happened there on a particular place at a particular time.
0: So again, that spirit of yeah. the representational is not important,
1: it's the thing that happens. It's and the how do you commemorate something like that? Right. right? So then, then I start thinking, and I go back to this conversation I had uh, at the time of the Olympics with the guy who was the director of the Apex Museum on Auburn Avenue, mm-hmm. the uh, African American Experience Museum. Mm-hmm. And at the time, there was uh, conversations going on about what this is probably 1994 95 what would happen during the olympics and the you know auburn avenue being spruced up a little bit in the old fourth ward and uh, uh, the atlanta urban design commission was talking about preserving the barbershop uh, the famous barbershop on auburn avenue where uh, all the civil rights leaders and king got their haircuts right, right. and the barbershop is is an institution in african american communities right uh, so the preservation of that, make it, and make it just like it used to be, just like it was. Right, sort of Yeah. And, uh, and this guy said, I think this guy's a little crazy. Wouldn't it be better if, if somebody just wrote an opera? Right. So, and, I, and I remember that conversation because when he said that, it struck me that there are very different ways to commemorate stuff.
0: You don't just have to embalm an existing Yeah, you don't have to presented. embalm
1: it. And an opera, and you think about an opera with all these civil rights characters in a barber shop with a haircut, I mean, what a phenomenal thing that would be. Yeah. So when we started talking about then, okay, how do we do this competition? We say, okay, now we got it. Architects, landscape architects, artists, poets, writers, video producers, anybody and everybody mm-hmm. can, uh, can participate. Invited to participate, every right. discipline, students, faculty, teams, professionals, doesn't matter. Okay. Then we said, okay, what, how we get? When I talked to uh, Craig Barton, who's the chair of uh, the School of Architecture at Arizona State, to mm-hmm. uh, talk to him about being the jury chair, he says, how are you going to make a decision? You know, if I'm the jury chair, how am I going to make a decision? When he said, hmm, there was a, d- a decision between a poem and some landscape installation. Yeah. And, and I said, well, maybe we have more than one first prize. He said, okay. <laughs> so we got three first prizes. So yeah, you were, you've been very
0: flexible and was like, well, okay, that's, that's, right. that's the answer. That's so the answer. we have
1: three first prizes with the idea and the hope that there will be three different things uh, winning first prize. Very different. And when we take the second prize and third prize and on a bench we'll have a whole bunch of stuff. Right. With the idea that you commemorate something not by, yes, by marking the site, in some way, right? but it's also a painting in, uh, that's hung in the Civil Rights Museum, or it's a poem that's published in a book. right? So the multiple ways that the Negro building is commemorated uh, is the way to bring it to public memory, not just marking the place.
0: Right, the marker only has, yeah.
1: there's some people that
0: said there's nothing as, as m- as unmonumental as a monument, or something right. like that. In fact, yeah. like if you want something yeah. to be forgotten, it becomes something you look at and you. You go, put up a plaque. Yeah, in right. m- in memoriam of this, and people, go, what? what's that? Oh well, I'll move on. Right. right, right.
1: So if you go back, if you go back to the King's speech, how's King's speech commemorated? Uh, and it's it, and there's no plaque. Yeah. On the steps, there's nothing. The video that's that they've got down at the uh, uh, Civil Rights Museum mm-hmm. uh, on the big wall, the video is the commemoration of it. Right, yeah. that kind of influ- the, the written speech is a commemoration of it. Right. Uh, and so this there's be- nothing on the site. So this becomes a way of creating a commemoration, which can spread and move. And, and do, and, and it happens in many, many different ways. And the idea, the more different ways it happens, the more it is brought to public memory uh, right. in different ways.
0: And I, I think this is so important, because I've, I've said To other people, I feel like there should be a straight line drawn from Boston to Philadelphia to Washington to Atlanta as far as the creation of this country and its fulfilling its promise and what it said to people and Americans becoming closer to our ideals. And the civil rights movement obviously did a lot for African Americans, but also did a lot as far as kind of saving America's soul. Yeah. Yeah. Removing that burden of hypocrisy and um, violence and all that that goes with it. And this building, as the kind of generation point for that yep. is incre is, is, is as important as um, I don't know Thomas Jefferson's quill where he wrote "All men are created equal" or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So where can people find information on and, and enter their their proposal Here, for this?
1: Here's here's the site is on uh, is on the web. Mm-hmm. Uh, all you have to do really is is uh, Google Negro Building. There aren't um, a lot of responses Mabel today. Wilson's build book jumps up, and the Negro Building Remembrance Competition dot com jumps up. Yeah. So the official name is the Negro Building Remembrance Competition dot Negro Building. Negro Building Competition dot com. Right. And the competition name is the Negro Building Remembrance Competition. Right. right. Uh, that has all the, the information on it that's still we're still announcing stuff mm-hmm. that's uh, going on it's sponsored by uh, the School of Architecture mm-hmm. uh, by the National Association of Minority Architects yep NOMA, Noma. Uh, and uh, the Center for Civil and Human Rights uh, in Atlanta mm-hmm. and
0: the architecture and design center yep, we were, absolutely
1: Richard brought this to our attention
0: we thought that's exactly we yeah help.
1: and and we're looking for other sponsors uh, if, you be, if you're a sponsor you need to be an organization that is somehow related to the betterment of Atlanta of creating public memory of important places and so on right uh, so it does not cost anything to be a sponsor what uh, we want our colleagues who are joining the effort Uh, The competition opened a while ago Uh, November 1 is the deadline. Okay Uh, November 20 and 21 will be the jury Uh, We haven't yet decided we're thinking we may hold off on announcing the winners until uh, uh, MLK weekend well, that seems appropriate uh, which would be in January, but we don't know if we can actually hold off or not all of the entries will be on a website Okay. So, so there'll be every everybody uh, will have their uh, proposal on a website.
0: So every entry, in some
1: way, will be. Yep.
0: We'll we'll actually fulfill that goal of of commemorating. Right. Right. So
1: so in one way, all the entries will be put up and be on a website. The second is uh, we're doing an exhibition of the winning entries and honorable mentions and others that are selected by. The jury to be part of the exposition ex- exhibition exhibition uh, yeah uh, and uh, we're hoping that'll open uh, here in the Stubbins gallery at Georgia Tech and then we're hoping it will move uh, immediately over to Morehouse okay and then uh, on a traveling circuit that uh, we've got a couple of schools already saying they want it mm-hmm. uh, but particularly traveling to HBCUs okay so traveling around for uh, for the next year, we may put it into a book of some sort, or it may just be a web-based um, right. web-based thing. But something to record the competition. Uh, the first prizes, what we said, is uh, a minimum thousand bucks each for the three first prizes. Okay. Uh, if we can raise more money, the money will go up. And there's people we talk to that say it should at least be five thousand. Uh, but we got we have to raise the money. To do that, uh, yeah, cost uh, cost twenty five bucks if you're a student to enter, mm-hmm. uh, fifty bucks if you, uh, if somebody has a job, right, uh, and the, uh, a the real job, yeah.
0: Those fees get into supporting the yeah, and all
1: all of that goes to the Negro Building Competition uh, Inc., mm-hmm. a nonprofit, uh, and all the money, all the funds will be spent on the competition. Uh, nobody's getting paid a salary, uh, right. Nobody's getting paid anything. We're no, all we're not we're sure. all volunteers okay. Yep.
0: Uh, well
1: I, and what you okay. do the the submission uh, is two things a 20 by 30 24 by 36 uh, submission a sheet of board paper. yep uh, a sheet of paper or board uh, it's a digital image Right, and it can be text. It can be a written proposal for something. It Mm -hmm. can be a drawing. It can be a design proposal. It can be anything, but it's on one sheet of paper, Mm -hmm. and it's accompanied by a 300-word essay describing what it is that's being submitted. Right, Uh, sort of an abstract. So you can talk about it, you write about it, and you can have the image. Uh, the image can be a poem, mm-hmm. uh, and then you might write about the poem. Right. Right. Uh, or you might have it's a maximum of three hundred words, so you might see see the attached poem. See attached right? poem. Whatever you want to do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But those two things are what's submitted; those will be a part of the ex- ex- exhibition. Right. Uh, and that's what the jury will see. Uh.
0: Right. I think that's um, an amazing competition. That it's multidisciplinary, but then it's the material is so important. I think it's actually going to be very challenging for people, too, so if you really like a good design challenge. But it should also be something uh, that produces results that everybody should be very proud of. So we're really excited about helping out with this and learning about the Negro building and helping other people understand this little piece that has helped ripple through Atlanta. And what you see today is, and with other other factors, a result of that, of that, yep. f- of that space that was made for that period of time, yep. And the people who filled it,
1: yep. And the what the way to learn about the building is, go to the website mm-hmm. <coughs> uh, NegroBuildingCompetition dot yeah. And there's one uh, uh, tag to, to click that's called information, right. There's a series of essays. One of them called The Negro Building, uh, written by Annabella. It's uh, about five thousand words, right. It uh, took a year to get the research done and write, and it's been uh, scattered around the country. It still hasn't been published officially, uh, but it's uh, not everything you need to know, but it gives you the full background of the New South, Atlanta, Piedmont, the beginnings of Piedmont Park, the exposition, the building and all that stuff.
0: So you get all the information you need to make an informed right. proposal. Right. And then there
1: are uh, two or three other essays relating that to the uh, New, Negro New Negro Movement and the Harlem Renaissance, uh, okay. and about the Bowen speech versus the Booker T. Washington speech. Uh, well, so okay. Annabella, who couldn't be here, is the person who's done all the research and writing about the Negro building, Okay. Uh, working with uh, Mabel Wilson.
0: Well, maybe we'll find some time to get Annabella to say a few words. Yeah,
1: yeah, and you just uh, you have to read you have to read all that stuff to get it to understand how complex and how lost so much of this stuff was. So you have to read to learn, you're saying? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you have to read it to figure out how you might how how you might commemorate this thing.
0: To do it in an informed way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks so much, Richard. This is so exciting. Thanks for bringing it to our attention, and. we will let you know when this is posted. Yep. And it should be soon. NegroBuildingCompetition.com